standing with me out of respect for the Word of God and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in our text this morning is going to be verse 28 through 31. I'll just make a, a peripheral comment right now. I'm not sure that we'll dig into chapter 13 just yet next week because I still need more work to understand exactly how it fits into Paul's argument. So we may take just a couple of weeks off to understand what God is saying here. But our focus this morning will be on these gifts here. Uh, which Paul speaks about that uh, God has adorned his church with. 1 Corinthians 12:28. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All have not gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you still a more excellent way. Let's ask God to help us. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen, and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt our souls. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God and Father. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to take a moment this morning to sort of plug into the context so that uh, we are understanding here what the Apostle is doing here, verses 28 through 29, obviously. Uh, We need to reach back into our text, probably back to verse 14, where we began our exposition of this uh, lengthier section last week. And remember uh, that the Apostle has, first of all, set up an analogy. And the analogy that the Apostle has set up is the analogy of the human body. And there he made several important points. And the very first important point that pertains to uh, the broader issue that he's addressing here in Corinth is the fact that the human body, in verse 14, has uh, many parts. It's not just one member. And we said, of course, at the time that part of the reason why the Apostle has to say this is because you have these people in Corinth who think of themselves as elite Christians because they possess the gift of tongues and perhaps others uh, because of the gift of prophecy. And uh, they have self-inflated egos. And they are, because they have this gift, uh, looking down at others who don't. This is causing division within the body of Christ. This is causing those who don't have these spectacular gifts to be discouraged and to wonder whether they even belong in the church, whether they belong in the company of those who seem to have such a a spiritually elite status. Uh, Then the apostle not only said that there is one part, but uh, many parts of the body, but then he goes on to say in verses 15 through 17, that the reason why we need so many parts of the body is because one part cannot perform the function of the other part. In other words, the eye cannot be the ear, the ear cannot be the mouth, the mouth cannot be the hand, and the hand cannot be the foot. 
it's just the way God has made the body that there are multiple parts to it and each part does what God has assigned it to do. And that's very important. There are uh, a multiplicity of parts so that the body can move and function in a coordinated way. Now that's obviously near to Paul's mind as he applies this analogy to the church because he sees something in that analogy that pertains to the church. You see that in this whole series of questions in verses 29 and 30. It's very obvious that Paul has set up that analogy of the human body to address this particular problem that some have exalted what they consider to be the spectacular and special And Paul, through a whole series of rhetorical questions, makes it very clear that no one person possesses all of the gifts. All don't hail. All don't uh, have the office of apostle. All don't prophesy. All are not workers of miracles. And, And obviously the point of the apostle here is that we need multiple people in the body, each having its own gift, and then they use that gift to build up the body. One last thing that I want to say by way of of introduction here, as we think back on the things that Paul has said there, uh, is to remember the whole reason why the body is like it is. And, of course, Paul makes it very clear in verse 18. It's because God made the body. He says, now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. Verse 24, the second part of the verse, you get the same thought. God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked. Uh, the emphatic statement of Paul here is that uh, the reason why the body is like it is and functions like it is and has multiple parts and not everyone gets to do uh, all of these, uh, not, not each part doesn't have the opportunity to be another part because God has assigned each uh, member to a particular place within the body. God has created the body. God has designed the body. And uh, therefore, it functions this way not by chance, but by divine sovereign design. Now, all of this is applied to the church. Because Paul says, you are Christ's body in verse 27. You are Christ's body. You are Christ's body. And so what we would expect is Paul's going to flesh out how this analogy applies to the church. And of course he does. In verse 28, he gives us a whole series of gifts. uh, Which really is simply a partial listing of gifts, but it's done to flesh out this analogy to say just as the human body has many parts, so the church has many parts, or gifts, if you will. Now, as we look at this list in verse 28, I want to divide it up into two parts. I want to divide it up into word gifts, And action gifts. And so that's how we're going to divide up the message this morning. There are word gifts and there are action gifts. And we used a similar uh, structuring when we looked at the various uh, gifts that were listed back in verses 7 through 11. I think that's a helpful way at getting at the nature of these gifts. There are word gifts. First of all, he says there are apostles. There are apostles. And we need to think a little bit about the background Uh, of that word and the concepts that uh, stand behind it so that we understand what an apostle is. Literally in the Greek, apostle is somebody who's sent. Somebody sent, but that really doesn't get into the theology of the apostleship like we need. What we need to do is dig into the Jewish concept of apostleship and 
We find very important things there to think about. First of all, in the Jewish concept of the apostleship, uh, the word is literally shaliach. Shaliach. It is somebody who is uh, legally certified to represent somebody else. Somebody who is legally certified to represent somebody else. It would be very similar to our concept of power of attorney. They have the right to speak for you and they have the right to act for you. And whatever the representative does, it's as if you did it. This was a widely recognized understanding of the term going back for centuries. And uh, Jesus uses this particular term to describe what these disciples will be for him. They will be those who will speak and they will be those who will act for him. And we know that that is on Jesus' mind because he tells us this in so many words in Matthew chapter 10. There are many passages we could look to to show you how this concept forms Jesus' understanding of apostleship. But Matthew 10 gets us there as far as we need to go. Uh, It's in verse 40. Uh, You remember the context is that Jesus is preparing to send out his disciples to the hillsides uh, to preach, uh, to cast out demons, and to heal. And as he is sending them, Jesus says to the disciples... He says, he who receives you, receives me. He who receives you, receives me. And that illustrates this idea that uh, these disciples or these apostles represent Christ. And so whatever they say, it's as if Christ said it. What they do, it's as if Christ did it. If people reject them, they've rejected Christ. If they receive them, they've received Christ. There's that principle of representation, and that is a core concept which is foundational to our understanding of this office of apostle. An apostle is somebody who has this unique uh, <clears throat> capacity or office where they actually speak for Christ and act for Christ. As we think now about the historical foundations of the apostleship, however, we need to turn back to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Here Jesus uh, sets up the twelve, and there's a number of things that I'm going to draw out of this passage uh, which help us understand uh, what the apostleship is about. Here we have uh, described for us the historical appointment of the apostles. And we're told in verse 13, he went up on the mountain and he summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And then of course it lists who the twelve are. Uh, Very important things here that emerge from the passage though. Uh, First of all, I want us to notice that it's Jesus who appoints apostles. It's not the church. It's not people who sign up for it. It's not people who decided on their own that they're going to be apostles. Uh, Jesus is the only one who appoints apostles. And we know that from the passage. He took them. It says he summoned them. It says he took the ones that he wanted. And then he appointed them. We'll come back to that as we look at Acts chapter 1 again. But a very important qualification here is Jesus who appoints people to the apostleship. Also, we have another important item here when you think about the number that were selected. It's twelve. Twelve apostles were appointed. Uh, 
I'm going to make two points about that. First of all, a limited number of people are apostles. Twelve. Repeatedly you find this in the Greek. The twelve. Uh, the point of it being is that Jesus um, <clears throat> didn't uh, pick hundreds to be his apostles. Uh, Jesus didn't seem to envision that there would be a succession of apostles from the original. There are twelve apostles. Now we have to do a little bit of uh, tinkering with that because Judas passes on and he's replaced and then Paul is added. But there's a limited range of apostles. And you say, well, well why twelve though? And, and it's obvious symbolism designed to underscore the continuity between the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. Mark Lane, commenting on this passage, says, 12 represents in a new form the people of the 12 tribes, and they represent the final form of the Messianic community built in Christ. And obvious, it's symbolic that we have 12 but it also points to the limited number. Next here, we're also told that Jesus appointed them so that they would be with him. Jesus appointed them so that he would be with them. And this is going to be a very important qualification when you get back to, over to Acts chapter 1. Only people could qualify to be apostles who had actually been with the historical Christ. And we're going to see when we get over to Acts chapter 1 that they had to have been with him from John's baptism forward. But the point of it is, this, uh, this calling to be apostle had something very special about it. It had a very special component in that uh, Jesus took time to select these people and to spend his life with them. And that was life changing for them. You see, only people who had the chance to be on the inside of Jesus' inner circle, only the people who had the chance to be with Him, to listen to His instruction day after day after day, only the people who had the chance to be around His company and to watch how He acted and how He treated people and how He interacted with others, only those kind of people who Jesus invested His personal time while He lived here in His earthly life had this great opportunity to be apostles. And that was a life-transforming opportunity. And we know that is the case as we look at the transformation uh, that occurred in the life of Peter and John. And you don't have to turn there, but it's Acts chapter 4. And they had been summoned before the Sanhedrin to give an account for their preaching and their healing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we are told here that they stood up And they began to speak, and the members of the Sanhedrin observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, and they were amazed, and they began to recognize them, and this is what's so important, as having been with Jesus. You see, there is that with Him principle that is drawn out, which is so foundational to the apostleship. These people were characterized by their time with Christ in a particular way. It was obvious that some sort of transformation occurred in their life because of their time with Jesus as He lived here on earth. They spoke with confidence. And this, of course, befuddled the members of the Sanhedrin, who, of course, are the ruling body of Israel. Uh, It consisted of powerful, elite, educated, cultured, sophisticated people. And, And here are Peter and 
and John. Fishermen by trade, uneducated people, and they even isolate that. They are not only uneducated, that means they don't have a formal education. He also says they are untrained. That means they have no expertise in anything. And yet, they are are holding forth and expounding the word with such power and confidence and insight that it amazes these highly sophisticated, intellectually elite members of the Sanhedrin. Being with Jesus was foundational. It was critical to being an apostle. Now we're going to see all that illustrated as we turn over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. So much of what we're covering here, people of God, we're going to need to remember as we come back to address at some later point the whole question of the gifts. What gifts stay and which which gifts are not with the church. But uh, we have to appreciate this this, uh, uniqueness, this redemptive historical uniqueness of the apostleship and what qualifications went into that. All part of the broader equation. But here, uh, you'll realize in Acts chapter 1, that uh, Peter stands up and says in verse 21 that they need to replace Judas. Of course, Judas uh, committed suicide after betraying Christ. And so he says it's necessary that the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, it's very clear here, according to Peter, how long somebody had to have been with Christ. How long did they have to have... Uh, with him in order to be an apostle and it's from uh, Jesus' baptism with John the Baptist uh, through Jesus' miracles through Jesus' teaching uh, through Jesus' trial through Jesus' betrayal through Jesus' crucifixion through Jesus' resurrection and then had to spend those 40 days with Christ afterwards until his ascension they had to have been with Christ all of that time soaking in his instruction and being mentored and discipled by Jesus as they go out and be disciple makers. And so we see Peter's challenge here. We must set forward uh, those who have been with us. And it turns out there's just two who met those qualifications. Joseph called Barsabbas and Matthias. And here's what's important again as we think about what is an apostle. It says they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They drew lots for them, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. But here's what's important about that. Peter prays to Jesus and says, You show us who you have chosen. In other words, it's the same thing in principle that happened back in Mark chapter 3. Jesus, knowing out of this vast group of people who followed him around, who claimed to be his disciples, he selected the ones that he wanted, and then he appointed them to the office of apostle. There's nothing different going on here in Acts chapter 2. I want you to see the connection between heaven and earth. Jesus has ascended, yet Jesus as the king and head of his church is still calling the shots. He's still in charge. He is still the authority. And he is structuring his church from heaven. And they call out to him. 
And they say, you show us who you have chosen. And so the principle is the same. That to be an apostle, you have to be chosen by Jesus and you have to be shown to be chosen by Jesus. That's also going to come into play when you think about the Apostle Paul as well. It's Jesus who confronts him. It's Jesus who selects him. And it's Jesus who places him in the office of apostle, not the church. You see, all of these are important uh, dimensions to understanding this office of apostle. Now, coming back to 1 Corinthians 12, when it says, uh, God has appointed in the church first apostles. Uh, Paul is saying something very important. They share the first place among everyone else. They are a unique group of individuals who have been with Jesus, who have been shown to be chosen by Jesus to be his apostles, and they and they alone are given the authority to speak in Jesus' name and to act in Jesus' name. And he who receives them receives Jesus. And of course, their calling and their function was to be witnesses to Christ throughout the ends of the earth. John Calvin commenting on an apostle says this, Apostles were sent forth to bring back the world from its revolt to the true obedience of God and everywhere establish His kingdom by the preaching of the gospel. They were like the first architects of the church to lay its foundations throughout the world. A unique calling, a unique office, a unique authority, a unique privilege, and a unique selection. You see, that's the apostleship. Paul puts that first to say to the Corinthians, you may think speaking in tongues is pretty spectacular, but being an apostle means you have been placed first to lay down the foundation of the church. So Paul says here, an apostle is somebody sent by Christ, bearing his authority, speaking in his name. Second, you have the office of prophet. And we don't have to spend a great deal of time on this particular office, uh, because uh, when we looked at this in back in verses 7 through 11, we said a number of things there that were important, and you can go back and listen to that um, message again. Uh, to refresh your thinking, there's just a couple of things I want to say here about prophet. A prophet is someone who uh, speaks inspired words from God. It's someone who uh, speaks inspired words from God. It's sort of an occasional uh, speaking of inspired words from God. That's basically what we get from uh, studying the New Testament out, is that the prophets didn't seem to have what we might call a pipeline to God where they just regularly heard from God and just went to church and started speaking. It seemed more occasional. And uh, we have several prophets named throughout the New Testament. You have, of course, Agabus, uh, who is mentioned on a couple of different occasions in Acts. You have the four daughters of Philip. Uh, Judas and Silas are singled out as being prophets in the Jerusalem church. And uh, you have a group of four prophets who are identified in Acts chapter 13 as being uh, part of the church at Antioch and part of the leadership there. And then you have Paul speaking about how the prophets, along with the apostles, were foundational to the church. Of course, all that's very important because uh, Paul places in the front part of the verse the two foundational offices for the New Testament church. Apostle and prophet. 
Now, why are they foundational? Well, the answer is obvious. The reason why they are foundational is because they are receiving inspired revelation. They are receiving the mind and will of God and are communicating it to the church. And that is essential for the church to be constructed. So Paul says you have the apostles first, then you have prophets second, and they rank so high because they both speak directly inspired words from God. Thirdly, you have the gift of tongues. I'm going to skip to the end of the verse, and it is instructive to note here that Paul does place the gift of tongues at the end of the verse. Remember, this is the gift that is privileged. Uh, this is the gift that the spiritually elite in Corinth were, uh, were, were thinking that made them superior Christians. And Paul uh, sort of signals that this gift isn't quite as important as they may think it is by placing it after the office of elder. Tongues. And we don't have to say a lot here because, again, we've already covered that back in verses 7 through 11. We're going to say much more about it when we come to chapter 14. Uh, what we did say there, however, was that tongues, the gift of tongues, the ability to speak in tongues, uh, was not uh, a communication in gibberish. It was a communication in real languages. Uh, that the disciples were given a capacity to communicate the gospel in a language they'd never studied before. That's the gift of tongues. And, uh, you know, if you look at Acts chapter 2, that's so clear. It not only says they heard other people speaking in their languages, then Acts 2 lists all these various nations. And the clear message from the text, and this is God's interpretation, not the Reformed interpretation or John Sartell's interpretation, this is the Bible's interpretation, that speaking in tongues is communicating the gospel in a language that you've never studied before. Now, uh, many people are persuaded by that. The more that that argument has been, uh, has been set forth and defended and expounded, uh, many in the charismatic movement have begun to accept the validity of that argument and say, yes, Acts 2 is speaking about a kind of speaking in tongues that is about communicating the gospel in a foreign language. However, many will make the distinction between tongues in Acts and tongues in Corinth. And they'll say, well, in Corinth it's obvious something else is going on. They're speaking tongues of angels, after all. But, but something that tends to confirm to my thinking that tongues here is the very same gift, and we'll get into this later on, we get to chapter 14. I'm not always giving you just promises, we'll cover things later, but we have to take uh, one passage at a time. You can't say everything at once, and so uh, uh, we'll get it, we'll get there, uh, Lord willing. But you see, kinds of tongues, and the way it's described there, that qualifier, kinds of tongues, indicates to me that Paul is thinking in the very same uh, way uh, as Acts chapter 2. That word kinds means species or classes. It's used to describe plants and fish and various aspects of the created order in, uh, in, in Greek language outside of the New Testament. And so when you hear kinds of tongues, 
What it sounds like is Paul is classifying the tongues. There are different kinds of languages, in other words. And of course that would fit with the, the, the culture of Corinth, which was a highly diverse uh, community, where people spoke all different kinds of languages there. And that's probably why the gift of tongues was so widely used there. But kinds, that word kinds there, reinforces that Paul is thinking in terms of classes. And, and that would suggest that he's, he's, he's communicating this idea that there are multiple kinds of languages. We're not just talking about one language, which is usually the, the, the whole argument from 1 Corinthians 14 that something different is going on. They're saying it's a spiritual language. Now Paul says kinds of tongues. So that would, that would tend to undermine that argument and reinforce the connection between Acts 2 and Acts, or rather 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Different kinds of languages. So you have uh, those word gifts, and I just place tongues under the word gifts because tongue is merely the ability to communicate a divine message about the gospel in a language somebody else can understand. But I want you to see next, and this is the last of the word gifts, Paul says, third, teachers. So in Paul's thinking it goes, apostles first, prophets second, teachers third. And notice the priority the apostle gives to the office of teaching. Very important here, because this is not one of the spectacular gifts. This is not one of those gifts which uh, makes you spiritually exalted because you're in touch with God and hear directly from Him. Teaching is simply the ability to explain. To explain and to organize communication about a particular matter and make it understandable to others. And it's placed here third. Interesting. What does that tell us? It tells us that the teaching office is foundational to the church. It's critical to the church. And, of course, if you think about that, and you just think about the multiple references to teaching across the New Testament, you realize why Paul puts it third. Uh, Acts chapter 2, when you see this snapshot of the early church there, in verse 42, you find that the disciples were devoting themselves, the Word of God says, they were devoting themselves to what? Teaching. To apostolic teaching. Uh, James chapter 3, you have a reference to the teaching office. And James, by the way, is probably the earliest written New Testament letter. Probably written in the late 30s or early 40s. So it's the first letter of the canon, if you will, even though it's placed on the back side of it. Uh, it's early, and they're mentioned there the teaching office where James says let not many of you become teachers Acts chapter 11 verse 26 you find Paul and Barnabas diligently meeting with the church teaching people in Antioch you find the apostles in Acts chapter 5 verse 42 daily teaching from house to house and preaching Jesus Christ you have Paul described in Acts chapter 19 as meeting daily in the school of Tyrannus, reasoning and teaching from the Word of God. And then he reflects back on that ministry time. In Acts 20, as he's speaking to the elders of Ephesus, reminding them that he taught them publicly. 
You see, everywhere you look in the New Testament, you find uh, the centrality and the importance of teaching and instruction. And as you think about it, it's not that hard to account for if you just go back to the last words that Jesus spoke while He was here on earth. When He summoned the disciples to Him, right before He ascends into heaven, He gives them commission, and He tells them to go make disciples, doing what? Baptizing and teaching. You see, the teaching office is essential and critical to the church. Because Christ has so ordered growth in grace and spirituality uh, that it would happen through you receiving instruction from the Word of God from those who Christ has gifted and called to teach. Jesus has made instruction in doctrine and in Scripture foundational to your growth in grace. Now that's very important for us to stop and think about for a moment. If you look across the New Testament, I'll say it again, you will find that the saints are always being discipled through instruction. Through careful, line-by-line exposition of the Word of God and expounding sound doctrine. You see, the church wasn't necessarily designed to be a social club. It wasn't to be a place where we facilitated social gatherings. It wasn't about designing programs that are, that are sort of um, uh, uh, low-key and we just kind of get together and talk a little bit. It, you know, everywhere you turn in the New Testament, that's fine for Christians to enjoy each other's company and, and to have coffee and whatever and, and talk. But if you want to be formed spiritually, it's not through social gatherings. It's through instruction of the Word of God. And that tells us something that's vital and foundational to what the church is called to do in this world. It's to teach. The church is there to be a teaching church. Expounding the Scriptures, interpreting the Scriptures, defending the Scriptures, explaining the Scriptures. There's one last thing I want to say about this office. And you have to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 to see it. This gift of teacher. This office of teacher, you need to see from the Word of God, is distinct from the pastoral office. The gift of teacher is distinct from the pastoral office. Verse 11 says, He, that is Christ, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And we'll just stop right there. It's clear from the grammar of the passage that the last two offices are placed in a different category than the first three. And this is one reason why in Reformed theology we have distinguished between the extraordinary offices and the ordinary offices. The extraordinary offices being that of prophet, an apostle, and of evangelist. Extraordinary. They were foundational. They were for the beginning of the church. They, they had this extraordinary capacity to hear from God and speak to the church what they were hearing from God. It was extraordinary. Then you have the ordinary offices where pastors and teachers take what they have heard from these people who were inspired and then they proclaim it and they explain it. Now clearly in the original here, they are separated off from those others by the grammar of the passage. You have and pastors 
and teachers, and they're so, sort of uh, held together there, distinct from the other group, because they're paired together. But um, what's important here is that Paul distinguishes pastors from teachers. In other words, it, it, it's, it's a biblical way of thinking to say that there are some people who are called uh, to be teachers who aren't called at the same time to be pastors. Now, you just, you can't find a pastor who can't teach. That's not anywhere in the Bible. A pastor has to be able to teach. A pastor has to be able to preach and interpret the Word of God. There's, there's no doubt about that. But, alongside of that, the New Testament indicates that there were some people who were called to teach, but weren't called to pastor. There are some people who have the capacity to understand the Word of God, who have been trained, who are gifted, who are qualified to teach in the church, but are called to be pastors. John Calvin recognized this, commenting on the passage. He says this, Teachers preside not over discipline or the administration of the sacrament or administration or admonitions or exhortations, but the interpretation of the Scripture only. In other words, what he envisioned based upon his analysis of the passages of the Word of God is that there are some people who just are called to this and they're good at it, but they wouldn't be good as pastors. That doesn't mean that they're all located in the seminary either. It can be very useful for the local church to have people who are recognized as teachers, uh, who have the ability to teach us. Uh, Catechism classes and Bible studies, and, and who the elders are confident in, can expound the word accurately, but haven't necessarily been called to the, to the pastoral office. And so they would come alongside the pastors of a church and help them and assist them in the teaching duties that are given to the church. A sensible position, and a biblical one as well. And so Paul speaks thirdly of teachers. And that ends our exposition of the first part of this section here on the word gifts. And we come now to the second part, which is the action gifts. And then when we wrap this up, we'll go into application this morning. But I want to just hold off and finish this because it won't take very long uh, to go through this list because we already covered some of it. Uh, Paul speaks now, after the word gifts, he speaks of miracles. And the way that was placed uh, back in, in, chap- in verse 10 in our chapter here, uh, we said that it's saying something different than healings. And we know it is because healings does come next on this list. In that situation, healings came in verse 9 and then uh, miracles in verse 10. And uh, there's a lot of debate about what this particular gift is, this gift of miracles, but I, I still tend to think that Calvin's view of it was correct in that it was an exercise of miraculous power against uh, the forces of darkness and hypocrites. Uh, He gives numerous examples from the New Testament where this occurred. Uh, Paul smiting the sorcerer. You have uh, the apostles striking Ananias and Sapphira with a death blow. Uh, Different things like this. I think that that's probably a fair way to interpret it. It's some sort of of a miraculous power to combat the forces of darkness in the New Testament era. So that's the, uh, the gift of, of miracles. Then you have the gifts of healing. And, the, and of course that's self-evident. Healing is simply the miraculous uh, exercise of divine power to bring about physical wholeness. Lots and lots of examples of this. 
Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 28. All throughout the Gospels we find numerous accounts of healings. It's an action gift. It was primarily given and designed to be a confirmation of the teaching of the church. We know that's true because Hebrews chapter 2 tells us so. That the word was confirmed by miracles and healings and so forth. That was the function. To certify the word as true. But these last two, I want to spend just a moment on before we wind down to conclusion and application this morning. And that is the gift of helps and administrations. And we need help understanding the gift of helps. Because it's not self-evident what helps is. You look at it and you say, what is helps? Well, if you look at the word in Greek, you don't get a lot of help. Because help is only used one time in the New Testament. Here. At least in its noun form. But we do uh, get insight into what is meant here by this word. By... uh, a verb which is built off of this uh, word stem. And it's used by Paul in Acts 20.35 where he describes part of his ministry in Ephesus. And he says, In everything I showed you by the working hard in this manner that you must help the weak. And then he says, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. You get some insight there because what Paul is saying, it gives us a window into what helps is, it's a physical or material helping of those who are in distress. In other words, it's a reference to the diaconate. As Charles Hodge says, it's persons qualified and appointed to help the officers of the church, probably in the care of the poor and the sick. These, according to the common understanding, from Chrysostom to the present, were deacons. So he says, going back all the way to the ancient church, you find that this is how it's been interpreted. Calvin basically says the same thing. It's connected with the office of deacon. So you have helps. Paul is referring here to those who are qualified who have been gifted to serve as deacons in the church. And then finally you have administrations. And uh, this is often mischaracterized and uh, spoken incorrectly about. Um, I think I've shared this with you before. Uh, This is often listed on those spiritual inventory lists. And you will hear people say that they've discovered that they have the gift of administration. And you ask, well, what does that mean? And usually they think it means doing things efficiently or in an organized way or they're the kind of people who can have a clean desk. Well, I don't have that gift because I have a very uh, messy desk at times. But uh, administrations, no, it's not efficiency. The the word is Kubernetes. It really is used, a related word is used with this word to refer to a pilot who steers a ship. In other words, it's somebody in charge. It's somebody who has oversight. It's somebody who is a leader. And for that reason, throughout the history of the church, it has been understood as people who fill the office of elder. That's the gift here. It takes giftedness to serve as an elder. It takes leadership responsibility or leadership qualities. 
And so Paul here refers to what we would commonly understood as the office of eldership. Administrations means rule, government, being in charge. And it takes gifting to be that way. In other words, God has to raise you up and qualify you for that. Not everybody has it. Not everybody has that gift. So Charles Hodge says, it seems to refer clearly to a class of officers distinct from teachers or pastors. He says, rulers or elders. Now, as you clarify these gifts all of a sudden, what do you find? And this leads us to our conclusion set of applications this morning. What do you find? You find that what the apostle has done here is refer to... Uh, in this last part, the ordinary offices of the church. Teachers, pastors, deacons, and elders. So this is what Christ has done. He, He has appointed that there would be gifts in the church, there would be officers in the church, that there would be an order in the church. And not everybody would have the same gifting, the same functions, that there's going to be uh, be distinct gifts and distinct offices and distinct functions. And the best way for the body to function is for people to find where they fit into that arrangement which Christ has set up. So we have these offices of teacher and deacon and elder and pastor. That brings us to our application. And the first thing that I want to say is that these are given to the church. Paul is not just referring here to Corinth. It can't be just the Corinthian church that is only Christ's body. What Paul is saying is that God has given these gifts to the church universal. He's given extraordinary gifts for a time that they would be the foundation of the church. They'd be like the architects and the foundation as John Calvin talked about. As Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2. For a time they were essential in order to lay the foundation of the church so that the walls could start to be built so that the Holy Spirit could now dwell among us. But there are also ordinary gifts that are given to the church. And so from the, uh, the end of the apostolic age forward, what do you find that Christ uh, continually giving to His church officers? You, you see Him giving pastors. You see Him giving teachers. You see Him giving elders. You see Him giving deacons. Because these gifts are given to the church. And so wherever the church is duly constituted and ordered, there you find Jesus exercising His headship, His lordship, His kingship over the church from heaven here on earth. When you see elders raised up and set apart to the office to rule, you see Christ acting. When you see deacons set apart for the ministry of mercy, you see Christ acting. When you see men called to the pastoral office to preach and to teach God's word, you see Christ acting. You see Christ filling His church with the gifts that Paul speaks of here. And it's in the church that you find them. You don't find these gifts among individuals. You don't find these gifts in parachurch organizations. You find these gifts in the church. Christ has determined to place these in His body so that His sheep would be built up. So they're found in the church. 
time that God has given them sovereignly. As a second point, I just I want to touch on just briefly here. Uh, this word here is powerful. God has appointed. Uh, you know, there wasn't a, a committee that, uh, of, of, of concerned church members who, who sat down one day and said, You know, we need, we need to break down the ministry here so that all everything's getting taken care of. And they prayed about it. And they said, You know, it would be a good idea if we had some people to take care of the poor. It would be a good idea if we had some people who could sort of lead. It would be a good idea if we had some people who could be set apart to teach. It would be a great idea if we had a pastor who could just spend his time studying and praying. No, this comes directly from God in His wisdom. Just as He has created the human body and designed the human body, there would be multiple parts working in coordinated fashion for the, for the health and the well-being of the body. So God has sovereignly given gifts to the church. So there would be multiple parts working in coordinated fashion for the health and the edification of the church. It's by divine design, by divine appointment, and by sovereign giving. It's God who makes people qualified to serve. It's not seminaries. Seminaries don't make you a pastor. Seminaries can help you sharpen your gifts, but seminaries don't make you a pastor. Experiences don't make you a deacon. They may help, but that's not what makes you a deacon. Or reading books on leadership or, or being in the military for a while or taking on a, a management positions may sharpen your leadership abilities, but that's not what makes you an elder. It's Christ from heaven who makes you an elder, a pastor, a deacon, a teacher. It's Christ who does that. He sovereignly gives gifts for the blessing of His church. And then finally, I want to make this point, and we close with this. And that is that these gifts constitute the full ministry of Christ to the church. These gifts constitute the full ministry of Christ to the church. And I want you to see what a beautiful balance there is. You have word gifts, and you have deed gifts. You have word gifts. You have people who have been raised up and gifted and qualified who are able to explain the Word of God. You have pastors and teachers who are qualified to interpret accurately the Word of God to explain that to you so that you understand it. You have pastors who are raised up who are given the capacity and the illumination and the understanding not just to interpret the Word but to wrestle with the passage to see its application to Christian living. So you have these word gifts, but God has done more than just give the church word gifts. Because if all that you ever received was sort of an abstract lesson about truth, it wouldn't be enough for you spiritually. It's not just enough to contemplate these realities as they are just sort of out there in space, uh, invisible, immaterial. What God has done is He's given deed gifts to the church to reinforce the Word. And so you see that God here has given to the church helps. He's given to the church deacons. He has given to the church people who represent Christ in His mercy. He has given to the church those who are spiritually qualified to come alongside people in periods of economic distress and to hold their hand and to pray with them and to love them and to show compassion to them and mercy to them and to provide their needs. Not just so that they're considered to be sympathetic individuals, but so that Christ is ministered to those people in need. It's not just a check 
It's Jesus coming alongside of people in their distress and showing them mercy. It's making the gospel tangible. That's what the diaconal office is. And if we think it's just about turning on the lights and turning off the lights and putting up the chairs and taking down the chairs and, and, and collecting an offering and putting in the bank and writing out the checks, if that's all it is to be a deacon, we can hire somebody to do that. A deacon is somebody who comes in the name of Jesus. Shows the mercy of Jesus to those who are in suffering because God wants the gospel not to just be abstract. So that in your experience, the gospel is confirmed. The compassion of Christ is confirmed to you. The same thing is true in the eldership. They're not just people who, 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 who sort of sit as the king of the castle and say, you do this and you do that. That's not the eldership. Sitting around at monthly meetings, and that's, we sit through a meeting for four hours, and before we fall asleep, we finally adjourn and go home, and that's all it is to be an elder. No, an elder is, is, is a guide. It's Christ to you. It's Christ in, in, in His loving Lordship coming alongside you in your life to encourage you and to admonish you and to give you wise counsel and to help you through difficult times and to be there as somebody who reinforces you in your spiritual journey. You can't do without an elder. Yes, the law is proclaimed from the pulpit, but the elder comes alongside you and makes it less abstract and talks you through the journey. It's a making of the Word of God practical and concrete. And that's the full ministry of Christ to you. And so that the church will have the full ministry of the grace of Christ. I know I'm not overreading the passage when I draw that out. And I know that's true because of how Paul finishes off his thought over in Ephesians chapter 4 after he talks about how Christ gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And here's how he finished off that thought. He said it's for the building up of the body of Christ so that we all attain the unity of the faith, so that we all become mature, so that we're no longer children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, by speaking the truth and love. We grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, Christ. You see what the gifts are for? The gifts are for you to be fully formed into the image of Christ. And we need the full ministry of Christ, word and deed. Word and deed. So that we will be edified and built up and discipled and preserved. Nothing's been left out. And God didn't ask us to add our creativity to it to come up with new offices and new ministries. This is it. This is the full ministry of Christ to His church. And so we conclude this morning thankful. Thankful. And blessed that we are in a true church where Christ is ministering to us in teaching, in preaching, in giving, and in leadership. Let's pray.